Here's the question I'd like you to ponder uh, as we get going. What's your most valuable personal quality? What's your most valuable personal quality? If you had to finish this sentence, the most important thing that I possess is blank, what would the blank be? Uh, Your looks, your sense of humor, your charm, your wit, your intelligence, your fitness, your gaming skills, what would it be? Well, according to the writer of Hebrews, what I've been seeing over the last few months is that the most valuable thing that you could have in your life is faith. Yes, absolutely, faith, faith in God. The most valuable thing you could have is faith in God. You see, the book of Hebrews is written to a whole bunch of people who are so beaten down with difficulties and troubles and suffering and trials. In all honesty, they're ready just to give up. They're being persecuted. They have difficult questions, unanswered prayers, whole bunch of doubts. Some of them are barely even hanging on. And at every point, the writer is wanting his readers to understand how to become the kind of people who can cope with the countless pressures that, let's face it, are part and parcel of life in the real world. And in his mind, the absolute key to all of this is the strength of our faith in God. In fact, he even goes so far as to say that without this, we'll never actually please God. Because without faith, we'll never go all the way with Jesus. Without faith, we'll never fully commit ourselves to his mission. Without faith, we won't obey him in the really harder areas. Without faith, we'll never make it through those dark chapters in our life. Now, I suggest that this message is perhaps even more relevant for us today than it was for the first readers of this letter. That there's perhaps never been a culture that gave fewer resources for dealing with the brutal realities of life and death than ours. It's like our culture keeps bombarding us day in, day out with the message that it's our right to have the life that we choose for ourselves. And so we live with this sense of entitlement that we deserve to be happy. And so when unexpected things happen that maybe threaten the life that we expected, that threaten the life that deep down we feel we deserve, then in that moment we have no way of processing it. We might not be facing the level of persecution that the Hebrews were, but there's arguably never been a culture with a lower pain threshold than ours. There's perhaps never been a culture where people give up faster. I tell you, expectations are everything. I think perhaps half the pain we experience when those difficulties happen isn't actually due to the difficulties themselves. It's due to the shock, the confusion, the the, the self-pity over the fact that it's happening to us in the first place. It's from our inability to process. Because we think that it's our right to have a pain-free existence. Whenever we hit a problem, it can completely throw us. Can't remember who it was. 
but I once heard someone a whole lot wiser than I am say this. He, he said that everything we find difficult indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces. In other words, in ordinary language, if suffering comes into our life and we just freak out, it's probably because we have a view of life, a way of looking at life that's unable to handle the realities of life. Now don't hear me wrong, suffering is always going to hurt. I'm not promising that you'll ever be able to get away from that. But at the same time, if you can enlarge your way of looking at life, enlarge your theory of life through the suffering, then you're going to be able to become a person who's able to face things a whole lot better. Now, what do I mean by a theory of life? Well, it's very simple. What's the meaning of life for you? Well, deep down, when you strip everything away, what are you really living for? And don't tell me what you think you're supposed to say in a church context. Honestly, what are you really living for? For example, if you have bought into the gospel of our culture, then probably what you're really living for is to maximize your happiness and your comfort in the here and now. And that right there is a theory of life. It's a way of looking at life. Most people in our culture say, well, I have no idea where I came from. I have no idea at all where it's all heading. So I'm just looking to maximize my happiness and my comfort, my ease right now. Or to flip it around, your reason for living might be to avoid all discomfort and pain. It's like, that's the meaning of life for you, for, for, for no suffering, no difficulty, no challenge, no pain. But suffering is inevitable. So you've got to enlarge that way of viewing life. You, you have to have a theory of life that can handle reality. And so, if the unavoidable realities of pain and challenge and difficulty and suffering and trial reveal cracks and weaknesses and flaws in your theory of life, the writer of Hebrews says, well, go and give my way of looking at things a chance. Why don't you dare to put your faith in God and I'd suggest do that and you won't have these problems. It doesn't mean you won't suffer, it doesn't mean you won't find it hard, but it means you'll be able to stand, you'll be able to endure. And so the call of faith in God is one that I, for one, believe that we desperately, desperately, desperately need to hear. The problem is, this isn't a new message for most of us. I mean, we've been banging on about it for the last few months, haven't we? So it's not new. We kind of know that faith is supposed to be a good thing for Christians. The issue is that a lot of us, if we're being honest, find it quite hard, don't we? Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, if putting all your faith in God is a struggle for you at times, Hebrews 12, I'm hoping, is going to be a massive help. You see, it offers us not one, not two, not three, but a whopping four motivations to keep pressing on in faith through difficult times. And we're going to look at each of those four in the time that remains with me up front here. Number one, consider the witnesses. If you want to keep persevering, pressing through in faith, first thing you need to do is consider the witnesses. The first word in verse one is therefore. The writer is saying, as a result of what I've just said, 
This is what you now need to do. In other words, it points us backwards. Backwards to what? To the list of heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Therefore, uh, as a result of what I've just written, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, He's pointing to all these people who risked it all on God and his promises. And summarizing all of these faith exploits, all of the faith of this great crowd of witnesses, the writer says in the previous chapter, chapter 11, verse 34, some of them quenched the flames of fire and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning some were sawed in half, and others were killed with the sword. Which kind of means that some of these heroes of faith, through faith, saw God do these incredibly powerful things, these wonderful miracles. But other times, they died without receiving any earthly validation for their faith, whatsoever. They prayed the same prayers. They believed in the same God. They had the same amount of faith, but for whatever reason, God didn't show up, or at least it seemed that way. And so, if you need some kind of earthly validation for your faith, if you'll only keep going as long as things are going well for you, then you're probably going to struggle to make it. Because sometimes God will come through with a powerful miracle. Other times it will feel to you like he is totally absent. Now I don't want you to miss this. All of these Old Testament heroes of faith, they were people just like you. They were people just like me. You know, I think we tend to read all of these stories and assume these were incredible men and women of faith that had everything all figured out. They had no doubts, had all of their questions answered. Have you ever read the Old Testament? I mean, Job, for example. He's called one of the three greatest men of faith that ever lived. Yet he ends the book of Job basically saying, God, this makes no sense to me at all. God, I don't understand. Why? And God's answer to him is basically, uh, excuse me, Job, until you create your own universe from scratch, you're probably not in a place to question me. If you're still stumped by basic stuff like linear algebra or quantum physics or negotiating your way out of the EU. Didn't actually say that to Job, that's me kind of translating it into today's language. If you're still stumped by all of that stuff, then don't presume that you can master the internal workings of my infinite mind. You know, 
Job died without ever really understanding what on earth God had been up to. What God did give him was a glimpse of his steadfast love and infinite power. In other words, what Job got was revelation about God, not explanation from God. And often, that's what we get to. It's like, we want to understand everything, know everything. And God gives us flashes of understanding sometimes. But even the best and smartest of us still have unanswered questions. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. All of these Old Testament heroes of faith are kind of like people in a marathon who started centuries before us. And these people now stand along the sidelines as we run, yelling to us, keep going. It's worth it. You can make it. They stand there saying, I know it doesn't make complete sense to you right now. In all honesty, it didn't to us either. But from your vantage point in history, you can now look back at our lives and see how God was working even when we didn't understand. He was bringing something out of us far beyond what we could see at the time. We couldn't see it. But from your vantage point in history, you can see it now. And so we stand as witnesses to you that God is working in your pain, just like he was in ours, bringing to pass a greater plan than perhaps you could even begin to realize right now. And so consider the witnesses. It's the first encouragement to keep believing when times are tough. Okay, here's the second help to faith. Verse two, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. That's the second point, keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, the original words used here in this verse, they imply looking off into the far distance. So it's not so much keeping your eyes on what Jesus is doing right now, but looking beyond your current problems and challenges to at least a couple of long-standing things about him that are mentioned in this passage. First of all, his promise. We do this by keeping our eyes, it says in verse 2, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who, get this, initiates and perfects our faith. In other words, Jesus is the one who started this process of salvation in your life, and he's also the one who will finish it. It's like when you're buying a house. You put down a deposit, don't you? And it's a sufficiently large amount to ensure you wouldn't walk away from the deal. Now get this. At the cross we see how much Jesus has invested in us. Just let it sink in. Jesus has invested his blood in you, which means he isn't going to walk away from you anytime soon. To put it bluntly, he's got more invested in your life if you're a believer than you do. So you can be confident that he will complete the process that he started in you. Listen, 
when you are ready to give up, when you feel like giving up on yourself, God won't. The cross shows you his willingness to save you and his commitment to seeing it through. The resurrection shows you his power to do so. It shows he's able to see it through. Let me just say how much that takes the pressure off me. Like every Sunday, I, I, I can pitch up here and I can be weighed down with this huge burden of what am I going to say that will lift people out of this and that? What, what if people don't respond? What, what if it makes no earthly difference to people's lives? And then I stop and remember, actually, I didn't start it and I'm not the one who finishes it either. I'm not the initiator or the perfecter of your faith. I'm not God. Jesus is the one who began it. He's the one who'll complete it. And he might use me a little bit in the process. Hopefully, from time to time, he does. But ultimately, what's going on in your life is up to him, and it doesn't all rest on me. And you know what? I think that takes the pressure off you as well. There are some of you that are looking at your life right now and you don't understand understand how you're ever going to get out of this situation or how things could ever even begin to change over there. God has showed you through the cross and through the resurrection, He can change everything. And so when you want to give up, Look to Jesus. Your salvation wasn't your idea in the first place, it was his. And in taking the initiative to save you, he was also committing to provide you with everything you need to finish the race. And so in many respects, all you're being asked to do is to run a race that you are already guaranteed to win. And so of course, you can get up and keep going to the finish line because God's already provided the assurance of victory and all the power you need to get there. Look at the promise. Look at his experience as well. We'll come back to the rest of verse 2 at the end, I promise. Let's look at what it says in verse 3. Think of all the hostility Jesus endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. You know, sometimes I I listen to all these criticisms of Christianity and it can all seem a bit intimidating. Uh, It it can knock my faith at times. The late Christopher Hitchens said, religion, all religion, should be treated with ridicule, hatred and contempt. A guy called Sam Harris says that the problem with Christianity is that it allows people to believe en masse what only idiots or lunatics could believe in isolation. Richard Dawkins says that Christian parents are effectively guilty of child abuse, that what we teach our children is worse than sexual abuse, and as Christians, we ought to have our children taken away from us. Or I read some editorial in the newspaper that says that Christians are hateful and 
bigoted people because we simply believe what God says about right and wrong. Now, of course, there are normally always things we can learn, even from really unfair criticism. But I also often remember the words of Jesus in John 16, where he says, they hated me, they'll hate you too. In fact, you should be wary when all people speak well of you. I mean, Jesus' crucifixion was a joint project between the government officials, Pilate, the the religious authorities, the Pharisees, the, the educated elite, those were the Sadducees, and the mainstream media, which was a combination of all of the above. Which kind of means that we can probably expect the same kind of treatment from all of those groups today. In fact, if we never get that kind of reaction, then just maybe we might be doing something wrong. And so keep your eyes on Jesus. The cross shows you that the pain that you're experiencing now is really to be expected. But don't lose heart. God God only brings the power of the resurrection through the pain of the cross. And as it basically says in verse 4, at least you haven't died yet, so be encouraged. Now, I know I'm talking to some people in here for whom this is painfully real. People that even now are being tempted to give up. I simply want to say, don't do it. Jesus has already won the race. And what he started in you, he is committed to completing. Not in your power, but in his. That's the second aid to faith. Here's the third one. Trust that God is both sovereign and also your father. Trust that God is both sovereign and your father. Verse 5, and have you forgotten the encouraging words that God spoke to you as his children? You up for a, a dose of encouragement? Well, listen up. He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes or Maybe a better word would be chastises or chastens each one he accepts as his child. Feeling encouraged? Well, it goes on. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Verse 11. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterwards... There will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Now, uh, we sang earlier about inviting the the discipline of God. So I'm going to go for this because you all sung saying you want it. Uh, There are two kinds of discipline being talked about here in these verses. In verses 11 and 12, the picture is of God disciplining us as our coach in order to grow our faith. It's like to grow muscle, I'm reliably informed, I'm no great expert on this subject, but I'm reliably informed to grow muscle, you've got to break it down first. And if your experience is anything like mine, when you're exercising your muscles, you often don't feel stronger, you feel like you're on the brink of death. But the experts would say, through the pain, is actually doing your body good. 
And in the same way, the muscle of your faith will never grow stronger if it's not first tested and broken down. And here's the thing. It doesn't always make a whole lot of sense when it's happening. When the difficulties, when the troubles, when the tragedies of life threaten to overwhelm you and it feels like everything's just spiraling out of control, just because it's not your plan doesn't mean that there is no plan. Behind it all, you've got a good coach, your heavenly Father, who is at work in all things, sovereignly working for your good, working on your faith to strengthen it, molding you slowly but surely more and more into Christ's image. So the first picture is of God disciplining us as our coach. The second kind of discipline being spoken about here is the discipline of a loving father for his children. The word used for discipline in verse 5 is actually a different word to the one in verse 11. It's the word from which we get our word podiatry. In other words, it's saying we need to view ourselves as children. The whole picture running through this, which is why it's supposed to be an encouragement to us, is of a loving father disciplining his child for their good. I think it's important to hold in our minds that when we as parents, if we are parents, if we've got kids of our own, when we discipline our children, we're not ever out to avenge the wrong they did. We aren't trying to pay them back for what they've done. Or at least it's not supposed to be like that. Sometimes because of sin that hides in our hearts, it can be like that. But as a parent, we're supposed to discipline our children only in order to mould their character, always and everywhere, for their good. What we're doing for them, we're doing in love. Our goal isn't retribution, it's the building of character. Let's be honest. I think we tend to think of discipline as a bad thing, don't we? But it's actually an incredibly positive thing. Of course, at any time, your child, they never see it as positive. It's always unfair. Children are always incredible, and apologies to the children in the room, just bear with me on this, when I was a child once, so I, I know, speaking from my own experience many years ago, children are always incredibly short-sighted, and dare I say, even arrogant, because they can't see anything good that could ever come out of this, then there can't be anything good. I'll tell you, it'll be the best part of 20 years before the child understands the reasons behind it. And then they'll humbly come to you as, your parent, as their parent and say, thank you so much for loving me, for caring for me enough to discipline me so consistently. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I'm still waiting for that day. <laughs> kind of wishful thinking perhaps, but that's how it's supposed to be. You know, despair is always an act of arrogance. Do you know that? The only way you can be in despair is if you are absolutely sure that since you can't see any reason, any way, anything good could ever come out of this, well, there can't be anything. Despair is for people who can see and understand everything. 
can you? I think we need the humility to receive God's discipline as being not for our punishment, but for our good. Now the author goes on to say in verses 8 to 10, that no parent disciplines perfectly. Let's be honest, sometimes we are more angered about how our child has inconvenienced us than we're deep down concerned about forming their character in the moment. But God's a perfect father. And so his children never experience the anger of his justice. It's always and everywhere the discipline of his love. Because the gospel is that if you're a Christian, every ounce of punishment for sin was put on Jesus. And for God to give even one drop of that punishment for sin to you would be unjust. Because God would effectively demanding two punishments for the same sin. Like if head of my wife pays the electricity bill for our house and then several weeks later the electric company sends me the same bill and demands that I pay it immediately or else the bailiffs will be round. I tell you, I'm going to get straight on the phone and tell them in no uncertain terms, that bill has already been paid. You can't ask for two payments for the same bill in that tone. And it's the same with God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because the full condemnation fell upon Jesus. So if you're a believer... God is never, ever paying you back for your sin through the hardships of your life. But you know, I hear believers say that all the time. I hear people saying that, I think God's paying me back for this decision. I think this thing's happened in my life because of that sin that I made. In fact, I know people that feel like they're living under the curse of something they did years ago. Listen, Jesus absorbed all of the curse for you. He took all of the judgment, all of the punishment, so nothing is left for you but mercy. Always. Now, that's not to say that believers can't suffer consequences for their sin. Like, if you cheat on your spouse you may well find that trust in your marriage is destroyed or you're a self-absorbed father and your kids end up estranged or you cheat and get kicked out of school or you do sloppy work, you lose your job. These are just the natural consequences from our bad decisions. And sometimes God uses those consequences to discipline us, to shape us, to mold us, but believers never suffer punishment or judgment because Jesus was punished he was judged fully in our place so that all that is left for us today is mercy now just to reiterate through all of this God's committed to growing you up to become more like him he's molding your character because he cares because he loves you is never punishing you in judgment. The question is, do you trust 
For in all things, God is disciplining you as a dearly loved son or daughter. That an all-knowing, all-powerful God is in control of all things and he is using them all ultimately for your good. Because the writer says here, believing that is absolutely key to you developing faith. Because it means that in everything, every difficult situation, every frustration, every trial, every challenge, every inconvenience, every disappointment, every tragedy, God's at work behind the scenes forging your character. And so when life's tough, and life is tough, The most important thing you can possibly do in the midst of it all is simply say, Lord, what do you want me to work on here? What what should I be working on? Instead of looking at your circumstances, trying to second guess why it's happening, look at yourself and say, what can I learn through this? Perhaps what character flaw is this highlighting to me? Is it my cowardice? Is it my pride? Is it a bit of lingering selfishness. These are things that, unless I work through them and deal with them, I'm I'm not going to make it in life. So rather than shake my fist at God because of all the problems, I'm going to thank him for giving me an opportunity to learn some stuff and hopefully change for the better. One more quick thing before my fourth and final very quick point. In verse 5 it says, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Uh, the word translated make light uh, is the exact same word translated disregarding in verse 2 where it says, Jesus endured the cross disregarding its shame. And so on the cross, Jesus made light of the pain and the scorn of others and we're told not to disregard or make light of the discipline of God now here's the thing I think if we're being honest sometimes we we reverse those things don't we we despise the pain in our life but we put a whole lot of value on the opinions of others it's like what we should be putting most value on the discipline of God we take lightly And what we should take lightly, the opinions of others, well, that's what we put most value on. And that's because we don't esteem what God esteems, the growth of our faith. There is nothing on earth more valuable than faith. There is no greater gift that God could give to you than faith. Which is why sometimes God will take away things of lesser value to work in you things of greatest value, namely faith in him. So, how do we keep pressing on in faith? Number one, consider the witnesses. Number two, keep your eyes on Jesus. Number three, trust that God is both sovereign and your father. And here's the fourth thing, focus on the joy. In all things, focus on the joy. Let's go back to the phrase we skipped in verse 2. Because of the joy awaiting him, Jesus endured the cross, disregarding its shame. What was it that held Jesus to the cross? The nails? The soldiers? Physical weakness? I don't think so. I mean, Jesus was able to raise the dead, wasn't he? 
Uh, he could calm storms with the word of his mouth. He could walk on water. Uh, he could have got down from the cross, I reckon, at any moment if he chose to. What held Jesus to the cross, according to verse 2, was the joy that awaited him on the other side. But the joy of what? Well, think about it. What would Jesus obtain after the cross that he wouldn't have before? The approval of God? Kingship of the universe? Adoration of angels? Glory? Holiness? I mean, come on, he had all of that already. What well, was the only thing Jesus didn't have before he came to earth? Us! Us! Look around. Us! Us! We were his inheritance. For the joy of reconciling you and me to himself, Jesus endured the cross. Now, if Jesus felt that way about you, doesn't that make you long to see him and be with him? And so the writer of the Hebrew says, through the pain and the trials of life, lift up your eyes, raise your gaze, and look to Jesus. Look to his joy. In his suffering, the thing that got him through was us. And now Jesus says to us, in your suffering, won't you seek me? Won't you be like me? Seek to be with me. I was obedient to the Father and I was crushed so that you could be absolutely sure in all of your suffering that you can keep on obeying the Father and death won't ultimately crush you. I was separated from my Father in my suffering, but in your suffering, you are never going to be separated from Him. I was stripped of everything so as to gain you. Won't you now strip off every weight that slows you down, especially the sin that so easily trips you up? Listen, the Christian life isn't simply about what do I have to give up because it's sin. It's more a case of what keeps me from knowing and pleasing Jesus more. Because that's where true joy is found. So here's my challenge as I draw to a close. Won't you have a way of looking at life? Won't you have a theory of life that actually works? Won't you live for something bigger and deeper and greater than the feeble, insipid, watered-down ambitions of the culture around us? Don't simply run the race to gain a short-term happiness and pleasure that never lasts or fully satisfies. Please believe for something better than that. Run the race that God has set out for you. Why don't you run for joy, deep joy, a joy that lasts? I'm not going to lie. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take faith, but not faith in your ability to get through. Faith in Christ's finished work for you. His power that's available for you even today. His commitment to bring you through to the end. And through it all, 
Won't you do it for the prize set before you? The true joy of knowing Jesus more. Make that your life goal and you won't go far wrong.